This evening we're going to consider children and heirs of God. Children and heirs of God. Romans chapter 8 verses 17 and 18. Turn to Romans 8 now. In those two verses Paul the Apostle says, And if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Previously, in our studies in the Apostle Paul's epistle to the Romans, we were considering the relationship between God and all who are in Christ Jesus, having been born of the Spirit and having received Jesus as their Saviour from sin. We saw that Jesus himself gives people the right, the privilege to become sons of God. We've, and we've also seen that a few minutes ago in John chapter 1. Those who receive him gave he the power to become the sons of God to them that believe on his name. This in John chapter 1. And such people are left in no doubt whatsoever about the reality of that relationship. As was seen in Romans chapter 8 and verse 16 last week, if you look at that now, verse 16, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. There can be no doubt there, if you're Christian, that you are a child of God. By the way, for anyone who's wondering why it is that God the Holy Spirit is referred to as it in verse 16 and not him, the reason is that the Greek word for spirit, as in Holy Spirit, or spirit, is gender neutral. Whether it's your spirit or the Holy Spirit, the word is gender neutral. And the King James Version translators have slavishly followed suit and written itself instead of himself. However, if you were to turn to John chapter 15 and verse 26, you'd see that Jesus said, but when the Comforter is come, speaking about the Holy Spirit, when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceeded from the Father, he shall testify of me. In that verse, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit with the words, whom and he. Today we shall begin to consider something of what it means to be a child of God. And you'll see that it is truly astonishing, especially when you consider that the children of God were once dead in trespasses and sins and hostile towards God. That's a description of you, dear Christian, before you became a Christian. Dead in sins and at enmity with God. The more you consider what we shall begin to look at today, being a child of God with a heavenly inheritance, the more you will appreciate the unfathomable riches of God's love, his mercy and grace towards his adopted children. 
But having said that, the greatest expression of God's love, mercy and grace towards hell-deserving sinners must surely be, what? The eternal Son of God being lifted up to die on Calvary's cross as he bore away their sins, the sins of those he came to save. As it is written in chapter 5 and verse 8, God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the love of God, Christ dying for us. I I challenge anybody in this world to come up with any greater expression of love and mercy and grace than what we read about at the cross. I don't, well, we wouldn't know anything about the love of God and his mercy and his grace, his justice, if it were not for the cross of Christ. That little word, if, in if children, see verse 17 there, and if children, that little word if straight away tells us that contrary to popular belief, not everyone is a child of God. Again, let me remind you that the great privilege of becoming a child of God is conferred by the Lord Jesus Christ on those who receive him and believe on his name as repentant sinners. Ordinarily, Jewish law only allowed for inheritance by daughters when there were no sons. However, here in verse 17, we see the word children, which of course embraces daughters as well as sons as those who stand to inherit. As Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 and 29, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Sons, daughters, makes no difference, all heirs according to the promise. In other words, if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a heavenly inheritance, regardless of whether you are a prince or a pauper in this world, and more to the point, regardless of whether you are male or female. As for what the Christian's inheritance is, if you look again at Romans chapter 8 and verse 17, Look at it again. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God. I'll stop there for a moment. You are an heir of God, dear Christian. God is your portion. And what more could you possibly ask for? Absolutely nothing. I like what the Bible commentator Robert Haldane said. He said, God is the portion of his people and in him, who is the possessor of heaven and earth, they are heirs of all things. God is all-sufficient, and this is an all-sufficient inheritance. God is eternal and unchangeable, and therefore it is an eternal inheritance, 
an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled and that fadeth not away. It is God himself then who is the inheritance of his children. Sounds very good to me that. What more could you ask for? Um, At the dinner table today we were talking about uh, inheritance. Nothing wrong with that. But um, when you talk about inheritance, as a Christian... That should take you to heaven in your thoughts. And the inheritance that you have as a child of God. For further insight as to what the children's, uh, the Christian's inheritance is, we can look at Abraham of old. As has already been mentioned when I read um, from Galatians chapter 3 verses 28 and 29. Those who are in Christ are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. About 2,000 years before the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world, Abraham received from God the promise of great blessings for himself and his seed. About 430 years later, in other words, long after Abraham had died, His natural descendants, the Israelites, took possession of the land of promise, Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. As for Abraham, he lived out his life as a stranger and a pilgrim in this world. For him, the promise of God was much more than a piece of land in the Middle East. He looked forward to a heavenly Canaan. If you are in Christ Jesus, then you are a spiritual descendant of Abraham and you are an heir of the heavenly Canaan according to the promise of God to Abraham. Just like Abraham and others, you confess that you are a stranger and a pilgrim in this world and that you are looking for a city, looking forward to a city which have foundations whose builder and maker is God. Well, that's the theory. But is that really your confession? Because we can all be very good at learning these things in the Bible, even memorising them, as I like to do. But is it the reality for you? Is it really your confession that you are a stranger and a pilgrim in this world? And that you are looking forward to a city which have foundations, whose builder and maker is God. I ask you that because there are more than a few professing Christians who primarily think of their inheritance in terms of money and property in this world. Especially here in our island home. Coming back to Romans chapter 8 and verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Dear Christian, not only are you an heir of God, you are a joint heir with who? With Christ. A joint heir with Christ. Can you understand that? Being a joint heir with who? 
the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Does it actually make sense to you? How can it be possible that we are joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ? After all, as the eternal Son of God, there is nothing for Jesus to inherit. After all, I read it earlier, all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that has been made. The Lord Jesus Christ is God and that must surely mean that all that is in heaven and in the earth belong to him. The one who laid the foundations of the earth. The heavens are the work of his hands. How is it that we are joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ? Nevertheless, it is written here in verse 17. If children then heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And also in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2. We read that God has appointed his son as heir of all things. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. Jesus is heir of all things. That is to be read with the understanding that the son of God is also the Christ. Whom God have sent into this dark world of sin. And who having made himself of no reputation. Taking the form of a servant. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The heavenly inheritance was paid out to him as the Christ of God and as the head of the church. Note that our heirship is seen in your present sufferings. You are a joint heir with Christ if so be that you suffer with him. That's what it says there. In verse 17, if so be that we or you suffer with him, suffer with him. Pete, uh, sorry, Paul knew a thing or two about suffering. He was a man who was severely beaten on several occasions and he was imprisoned for the cause of Christ and his gospel. Also, Paul forsook everything that he may know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. I can only imagine that if you are a child of God holding fast to the faith of the gospel, that you also, to some degree, suffer the reproach of Christ and you consider it fellowship with him. For unto you, It is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. And so we read there in verse 17, that we are joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him. Last of all, in verse 17, as Christians, we suffer in this fallen world, that we may be also glorified together. That is with Christ. That glorification will be twofold. Your soul will be glorified at death 
And even though your body will see corruption, it will nevertheless be made like unto the Lord Jesus Christ, his glorified body, when he comes again. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And so it is that if as joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Looking at verse 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The sufferings can be seen as a refining process in which God is the refiner and the purifier who purifies and purges his heirs in the fiery furnace in order that they might be conformed to the image of his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ, even unto his death. For me, a great example of fiery trials can be found in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament book of Daniel, where three godly men, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, refused to comply with a, with a decree of the king of Babylon, which required everyone to bow down and worship a 90 foot high golden image whenever certain music was played. The three men said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. That's Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego saying that to a despotic king. Would we dare to answer our chief minister with those words? As such, they refused to worship an idol, regardless of whether or not God would deliver them out of the fire. And consequently, the king commanded that they be thrown into the, into the fiery furnace. As it turned out, the Son of God was seen by the king to be in that fire with those three men. And they were delivered from the fire completely unharmed. The point is that ultimately... It was God who gave Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego that fiery trial. Do we realise that? That ultimately God gave them that trial. By faith they could see beyond this present life. And even the threat of a fiery death did not dissuade them from refusing to bow the knee to an idol. And God was with them in that trial. One might reasonably say that their whole attitude of heart and mind was the same as that of Paul, who said to live is Christ and to die is gain. Furthermore, their attitude was like that of Moses, who according to Hebrews chapter 11, 
verse 24 through to 27 said, or rather those were, uh, the, this is what it says in those verses. When he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Suffering the reproach of Christ. When you go through fiery trials and you suffer for Christ's sake, like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Moses, the Apostle Paul, and many others throughout history, God is testing your faith. Not that God needs to find out if you are really saved. He already knows who are his He knows whom he gave to his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus knows whom he came into this world to save. And to die for as he bare their sins in his body. The trials and the suffering are for your sake. Not for God's sake, for your sake. As well as serving as a refining process, they show whether or not you really do belong to Jesus. That's got to be a good thing, hasn't it? So there can be no doubt in your mind. Because circumstances, your deceitful heart, the devil who's walking around as a roaring lion, all sorts of things come into play. And you can have doubts about all sorts of things. And you can very easily have doubts Do I really belong to Jesus? Well, there's nothing like a trial to give you that assurance that you belong to Jesus. That he is with you in the fiery furnace. Of course, it all depends on how you respond in those trials. For example, in the parable of the soils, The Lord Jesus Christ identifies the true believers who hear the gospel and they endure, bringing forth much fruit. But also, Jesus identifies those who hear the word of God and they fall away as a result of the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, tribulation and persecution. They fall away. You don't see them anymore. Where have they gone? Quite a few like that. Finally, looking at verse 18 again. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The Greek word that has been translated as worthy. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That word worthy has the meaning of being of weight. As such, Paul is saying that the glory that is to be revealed to the children of God far outweighs 
the combined trials that we have in this lifetime. If you think how bad things are for you now, multiply it, multiply it, and um, and to, to get some idea of the good things that are to come. If you open the pages of the book of Revelation, you'll get a taste of what is to come for those who endure and for those who do not endure. Let's have a look at Revelation chapter 21 as we come to a close. Revelation 21 verses 1 through to 8. The Apostle John says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful, and unbelieving, and abominable, and murderers, and whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You see what is in store for the believing, those who are who have received Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, believed on his name. Verse 7 there. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Dear Christian, the Lord Jesus Christ, he endured the ultimate Suffering at the cross, despising the shame when he was wounded and he was put to death for your transgressions. And he did so for the heavenly joy that was set before him. With the indwelling Holy Spirit as the seal of your heavenly inheritance, pray that you too would consider it a privilege and a joy to suffer shame for his name as you consider your glorious inheritance which is stored up for you in heaven and which Jesus himself will give you when on that final day he will say to you who believe in him come ye blessed of my father 
inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Amen.